My lesson this evening is about washing dirty feet, hence the title Dirty Feet. And it's taken from the passage in John's Gospel where Jesus washed the apostles' feet. Now before we draw lessons from this act, I want us to go back and review what happened that night when Jesus gathered with His chosen apostles to eat the the Passover meal. Now in this, this story actually begins in Luke's gospel where Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover meal. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke 22 and we'll read beginning in verse 7. It says, Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And they departed and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now the fact that John and Peter actually set up the meal is an important uh, idea to remember, an important fact to remember, and it will have bearing on what happens later on that night. Now we have a misconception about the Passover meal because of a famous painting. In Leonardo da Vinci's painting, we see Jesus and the apostles sitting on chairs at a rectangular table with the Lord at the center and the apostles on either sides. It's a very famous rendition, if you wish, of the Last Supper or the Passover meal. Um, This painting is well known, but it is historically inaccurate for the custom of the times. The Jews of the first century did not sit in chairs around a rectangular table, but rather reclined on cushions on the floor, resting on their left elbow and eating with their right hands around usually a U-shaped table or a half moon type very low, uh, very low table. They all reclined on only one side of the table in order to allow easy access for service. This also explains how the woman who Luke says was behind Jesus began to anoint his feet. In Luke chapter 7 verse 38 it says the woman was behind him and she started to anoint his feet. Well if he was sitting down at a table and she was behind him she would have to be going underneath the chair and underneath the table. That doesn't really make sense. But if you look at it from first century Palestine the way that they ate, the way their bodies were positioned, she could have easily come behind him where his feet were and begun to do what the Bible says that she she did. Another important element was the seating arrangement customs at that time. Normally the host, whoever was preparing and receiving the host, had the first spot at the right of the table to be able to serve or to defend the eldest or the leader who was conducting the meal and who was sitting next to him. 
the father, of course, or the leader that we speak of, he would be the next person seated, seated next to the host. Then next to him would be an honored guest, usually chosen by the leader or the father. And then all the other spots in descending order of age or importance until the very last. And then the last spot on the left was also reserved for someone of importance. So according to this information and what John and the other apostles described, this is what the seating arrangement probably looked like. Beginning on the right, depending which way you're facing, John takes the host position next to Jesus, who is the leader and the teacher. We know this because in John 13, 25, it says that John leaned on Jesus' breast and asked him a question. But John could have only done that if he were positioned next to Jesus. On the other side of Jesus was Judas. Now whether, Judas cho- whether Jesus chose him to sit there or Ju- Judas simply took the seat for himself, we don't know. But we know he was next to Jesus because Jesus himself handed Judas a morsel of food. Again, not possible if he was sitting further away, he would have handed it to someone else to, to hand it to him. One of the customs of the time was that the leader would give the first morsel or the first or the, uh, the sop, if you wish, the first morsel of food at Passover, the leader, the father, the, that individual would give it to an honored guest. And so in this case, Jesus gives it to Judas. Now the others were seated around the rest of the table until the last spot, the last spot of honor, and that went to Peter. Again, we know this because Peter had to gesture to John to ask Jesus who the traitor was, suggesting he was some distance away. Also, John tells us that Jesus came to Peter last when washing the apostles' feet, and so this would put him at the other end of the table. Now, I mention this seating arrangement because it explains how the argument among the apostles started. Think about it. Luke records that a dispute arose among the apostles as to who among them was the greatest. And this argument started when they finally were seated at the table. In Luke twenty two twenty four, Luke says, and there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Now if this seating arrangement is accurate, we can readily see why the other apostles are upset. Peter and John, who are sent on the errand to, to set up the meal, what do they do? They reserve two honored spots for themselves. And Judas, who is already suspected of being less than honest by the others, is sitting next to the Lord. The, the, the other honored spot is Judas. So, There's jealousy, there's bitterness, and there is a dispute that erupts into an open argument. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus calms their anger and he deflates their bruised egos by washing some dirty feet. And so the Passover meal and the seating arrangements have been prepared by Peter and John. Now, one other item was there. I mean, aside from the table and the food and the cushions, probably left by the owner of the house, and that was a basin of water and an apron or towel for the purpose of washing the feet of the guests when they arrived. 
And we're familiar with this idea. We've talked about this before. This was not some kind of ceremony, but simply a common courtesy practiced at the time. I remember in Canada, <clears throat> in the wintertime, uh, people would be walking around in the snow and the, 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 the slush and their salt and so on and so forth and they'd come into your house and they'd have to take off their boots and you know and many houses, ours included, we'd have like several pairs of slippers, you know, used ones or paper ones or something that we would offer our guests after they took off their boots they would have the comfort of putting some slippers on in order to come into the house. Well this was a version of this. People would have their feet washed before they entered the house. People walked barefoot. They came from many miles away. They wore sandals. And usually the youngest slave in the house, the youngest boy, was assigned to wash the feet of guests as a gesture of welcome and hospitality by the host. So I want you to imagine for a moment the scene as each apostle enters the room the first thing that they see is the basin of water and the towel. But not wanting to lower themselves to wash their own feet, let alone the feet of their fellow apostles, they walk into the room, they spy the water, there's a little pause, no, I'm not going to do it, and they, (laughs) they go ahead and take their spots around the table. This was beneath people who were interested in position. A man of my position, an apostle of the great Lord, washing somebody else's feet, washing my own feet, that's beneath me. Now what's truly amazing about their behavior is that no one thought of even washing Jesus' feet. As I said before, once they were seated, their dispute about who is the greatest begins. And it's at this point that Jesus gets up from his favorite seat to wash their feet. So let's go to John this time, chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now I want you to note that even if none of them thought of washing each other's feet and none of them thought of washing Jesus' feet, none of them thought to jump up and take over this menial task from Jesus. They just let him do it. Jesus, knowing who he was and what he was sent to do and where he would return, accepted this humble task nevertheless. If you think about it, the first set of feet he washed may have been, first or second, may have been Judas. He even washed Judas's feet. Note what happens when he gets to Peter in chapter 13 again. We continue this time in verse 6. It says, And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand thereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So what Peter says here is a reminder of what John the Baptist said to Jesus when Jesus came to be baptized. John the Baptist is mortified. You know, he, he says to Jesus, I have need to be baptized by you, he says, but you come to me? Well, in the same way, Jesus answers Peter's objection. Not by saying this foot washing fulfills some kind of righteousness, which is what Jesus said to John the Baptist. Rather, he tells Peter that he'll understand later about what Jesus is doing this night. Once he dies and resurrects, Peter will put all of Jesus' words and actions together into proper context and he'll understand. Well, good old Peter, a little more brash than John the Baptist, can't leave it alone, can he? He makes yet another comment. You will, he will not allow Jesus to humble himself in this way. It makes Peter cringe to have his Lord humble. Lord, you're not going to do this. Can you imagine what he's feeling? Have you ever had a favorite teacher or a coach or someone that you really looked up to as a young person and maybe you know, uh, some weekend you went to a, a drive-in, a car wash or something and you go get your car washed and there's your teacher earning extra money, you know, wiping down the car and drying the car and you know, waiting for a tip. You know, oof, wouldn't that be a little cringe inducing? Or that same teacher or, or, or somebody who's working for the minister, your youth minister, delivers pizza to your house because he's got a weekend job and you're going, oh man, don't, you're better than this. You're embarrassed for them. Peter is expressing this idea, oh Lord, you, know, I'm, you, you, you can't be doing this. This is beneath you. And Jesus responds that those not cleansed or washed by Him have no part with Him. Isn't that an unusual thing He's saying? This time Jesus' response is like the response He gave to Nicodemus about being born again as Nicodemus struggled with the idea that one had to be renewed in water and spirit in order to be you know, part of the kingdom, you had to be kind of born again. And here Nicodemus you know, was speaking in human terms. Lord, he said, I don't understand. You mean I have to go in my mother's womb? How can that happen? And of course, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus on spiritual terms. Well, in this case, Peter, he's still talking about foot washing. And how this action by Jesus lowered his prestige somehow and his position. And Jesus responds on the spiritual level saying, unless he washes you, unless he makes you clean spiritually, you can never be clean, you can never be righteous, you can never be saved. And the price that Jesus was willing to pay in order to accomplish this was much more than just washing somebody's feet. That's why Peter would only get it after. So Peter, sensing that his reluctance to allow Jesus to do this may somehow separate him from the Lord, he goes completely 
in the other direction. Well, don't just wash my feet, wash my head, wash my hands. Again, very much like Nicodemus, Jesus assures Peter that if he has been washed, if he's been purified, if he's been saved by Christ, he only needs to submit to the foot washing at hand. And that was the very thing that Jesus had asked to do for him in the first place, before going round and round on this, this chase here. Not only Peter, but all the apostles would, as Jesus said to Peter, understand what was taking place when all of the events of the next few days would be complete. This act of washing their dirty feet was a living parable, I repeat that. This act of washing the dirty feet was a living parable that pointed to what was to come. You see, the Lord, the teacher, the Messiah, not only humbling Himself to wash their dirty feet, but that same Lord and teacher and Messiah submitting to torture and death in order to clean their dirty lives. Only after His death and resurrection would they see and understand the parallel between the service He was rendering them there and the service that He was about to render them on the cross. Now I call this episode a living parable because instead of teaching the apostles a parable about humility with a, with a story, Jesus acts out the parable in real life, real time situation. So if this is a living parable, what are some of the lessons that we can draw today from this parable of the dirty feet? First of all, First lesson, be careful not to ritualize what is supposed to be practical. You know, there are many religious groups and denominations that have taken this event and created a ritual out of it. For example, Monday, M-A-U-N-D-Y, Monday, Thursday, is part of Holy Week practices among Roman Catholics and others who continue the ritual of foot washing to this day. Ritualizing the practice dilutes the actual purpose and result of Jesus' teaching on the subject. And it also leads to division as groups begin to argue how and when. How should we wash the feet? Who should we wash the feet? Should everybody's feet be washed? Should the elders wash the deacons' feet? Should the deacons wash the preachers? You know? In the passage, Jesus tells Peter that he will understand later on the significance of the foot washing. And later on when Jesus explains how Peter was to die as a martyr and that he was charged to feed the flock, Peter saw the way that Jesus had set for his own life of foot washing experiences. It wasn't ritual. But nowhere in his writings and nowhere in the apostles' teachings do we see them teaching or commanding or ritualizing this custom for religious purposes. If the apostles did not continue this practice in a religious context, we shouldn't invent it and practice it as well. Another lesson. Realize that the foot washing lesson is really about washing dirty feet. Why don't we let Jesus explain, shall we? Let's go back to chapter 13, pick up the narrative in verse 12, it says, And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus is very clear here as He explains the living parable, as He does with many other of His parables. First of all, He says, if I, your Lord and your teacher, can humble myself to wash your dirty feet, then you, who are less than I, in position and knowledge and power, can certainly do the same. Number two, He says, what I have done, I've done to teach you how to treat one another not to create some sort of religious ritual. And thirdly, if you follow my example, what example is it of humility? If you follow my example, you will be blessed. How? There will be harmony. There will be peace. There will be love. There will be joy among yourselves. Very rarely does war break out because people are too humble. Very rarely does an argument begin in the church because we're too meek. Usually arguments and wars start because of pride, because of vanity, because of sensitive egos. And Jesus says if you've learned the lesson of the dirty feet, you'll be rewarded with peace and harmony in your families, in your homes, in your churches, in the world. On the eve of His crucifixion and in the midst of a heated debate among His apostles concerning who was important and who was the greatest, Jesus leaves them with a vivid example of how to maintain peace and harmony among those charged with establishing His church. And then one other lesson. The lesson of the dirty feet is as much for us today as it was for the apostles. There are still the sins of pride and selfish ambition that exist in the church. These cause anger and resentment and division, competition among members. I mean, is there any reason we ought to be mad at each other? What good reason exists for one brother to curse another? Can you give me that good reason? Can you come up with a cause for a sister to speak badly? about another sister? Is there a cause? These type of things cause anger and resentment and division. We are still called upon by the Lord to wash dirty feet, not create a dirty foot ritual, but rather emulate the Spirit of Christ when faced with the dirty feet of somebody else. The dirty feet in this living parable represent what may be repugnant or offensive in our brother and in our sister. It could be their appearance. It could be their attitude. It could be their sins and their weaknesses. Maybe the way that they have treated you. Making the effort to serve their best interests and overlooking their faults forgiving them their offenses against you, loving them despite their dirty feet. This is the action modeled by Christ with that basin and that towel in the upper room on that night so long ago. 
If you have been washed by Him, then washing dirty feet is the way to follow Him. You know, two questions immediately come to mind based on this passage. Question number one, have you been washed by Him? It was the question or the statement that he made about Peter. He's washed you clean of sin and death if you have confessed His name and repented of your sins and been cleansed in the waters of baptism. That's the answer to that question. The second question is, whose dirty feet has Jesus asked you to wash lately? And how have you responded? Have you responded like the apostles? Too proud to lower yourself? Too proud to humble yourself? Too proud to die to yourself? Or have you followed the way of the master by taking the basin and the towel in love and in service? Jesus said a little later in that same room on that same evening, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples in the way that you love one another. John 13, 35. Well, you know what? We could adjust that. He could have easily said, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples in the way that you wash the dirty feet of one another. If you need to be washed clean or if you need prayer in order to better take up the basin and the towel, then we encourage you to come forward now as we stand and as we sing our song of encouragement.